traits and characteristics of one generation were passed down to the next. Not perfectly, of course. So a father still couldn't be quite sure. He had to hope that his athletic talent would be passed on to his son or his lack of athletic talent would not be passed on to his son. A mother still has to hope that her daughter will inherit her aptitude for math and not for chocolate. Would that it were only our strengths that were passed on. Or, you know, at the very least, no more than our insignificant flaws. Sadly, of course, the evidence is only too clear that our worst selves, and not just our best, are often what our children take away from us. From the tribal reservation to the inner city project. From leafy suburban streets to pricey urban enclaves. Generational cycles of addiction and abuse and dysfunction are passed on from one generation to the next as relentlessly as we pass on the color of our skin. Now, as you know, lots of people have given lots of thought to how to break this cycle. Education, jobs, housing, they're all put forward to change the circumstances of those who are trapped in this cycle. But I think we have to ask the question, what, what if the problem is deeper than that? What if breaking the cycle of one generation passing on its worst to the next generation, what if breaking that cycle requires more than just a change of circumstances? What if, it cha- what if it requires a change of heart? And if so, what government agency, what program can do that? This fall, we've been tracing the rise, fall, and return of King David in the book of Second Samuel. And today we come to some of the most violent, some of the most dysfunctional, some of the most abusive chapters in the whole Bible. What they demonstrate is something that we already know. The sins of the fathers are indeed passed on to the children. Our children are our heirs in more ways than we'd like. But what they also show is that something profoundly radical is needed. If this cycle of sin, if this cycle of abuse, if this cycle of dysfunction is going to be broken. What they show is that what's really needed is judgment. A judgment that means even taking God's side against the side of those that we hold most dear. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, that's found on page 489. 489. We're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14. And our passage breaks down very simply. First, chapter 13. Like father, like sons. Like father, like sons. And then second, chapter 14. 
Appearances are deceiving. Appearances are deceiving. First, chapter 13, like father, like sons. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from, my, from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and Make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shears were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, your servant has had shears come. Will the king and his officials please join me? No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. 
Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. And then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have not I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonayim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, see, the king's sons are here. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king, too, and all his servants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. If this chapter feels like a repeat of chapter 11, it should. Only on steroids. In chapter 11, David saw a beautiful woman by chance and sent for her. Here in chapter 13, his firstborn son, Amnon, obsesses over a beautiful woman and then tricks her into coming to him. David, in chapter 11, took, abused, and slept with another man's wife. Amnon seizes, abuses, and rapes his own half-sister. David sent Bathsheba away at first, only to marry her later. Amnon throws Tamar away like yesterday's garbage, with no intention of ever doing right by her. You see, Amnon is without doubt the heir apparent. Like father, like son. But the story keeps going. In chapter 11, David plotted in quick desperation to kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Here, Absalom, Tamar's brother, buys his time. Plots his revenge for two whole years. David uses the Ammonite army, a pagan army, to accomplish his murder, an accident in the heat of battle. Absalom uses his own men to commit cold-blooded murder at the height of a feast. The new heir apparent has emerged.
once again, like father, like son. David's sons had learned their lessons at home very well indeed. What is inescapable in all of this is how responsible David is. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17, the penalty for incest was death. But of course, this isn't exactly straightforward. This was not consensual sex. It was a rape. And so we were, were moved over in, in the law of God to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. At, at the very least, according to the law, Amnon should have paid a fine and then been required to provide for Tamar the rest of her life as her husband. Since according to the customs of the day, she had now been rendered unmarriageable by anyone else. That at least was what Tamar had begged for after the rape. Don't, don't misunderstand her words there in verse 16 when she says, no, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. She doesn't all of a sudden you know, develop affection for her rapist. Not at all. It's that she knows the law. Is that having taken what was not his to take and what he could not now give back. He owed her the price that her virginity deserved. You see, the law had a lot of options for David. David could have brought justice to bear on Amnon. But he doesn't. Oh, he, he's furious at what Amnon did. That's where it stops. His outrage lets everybody know what a terrible thing this was. But by doing nothing more than vent, he also lets everyone know that either he is impotent to control his own family, or he really does love his boys more than his girls, or perhaps both. And so as the chapter unfolds, Absalom is left to take matters into his own hands. But Absalom does not give his sister justice. He merely takes revenge. If anything, he actually makes Tamar's situation worse. Her refuge is now a refugee himself. And so the words of Nathan the prophet begin to be fulfilled. The sword has come to David's house. And having come, it will not depart. The only innocent person in chapter 13 is also the only wise person. Tamar. And I think that's really the first thing that we've got to take away from this chapter. Amnon took her virginity. Amnon took her future. This is why she, she rends her robes. That robe was, the, was, the, was basically the, the sign of her inheritance. It was her dowry. And it was now worthless. He had taken her future. But Amnon could not take her humanity. 
The author goes out of the way to make clear that though she was the victim of brutality and sin, she was never reduced to a victim, never dehumanized, never silenced. It is her voice that rings out above all the din of lust and rape and murder as the voice of reason, as the voice of justice, as the voice of wisdom. You noticed here that that God isn't mentioned even once in this chapter. But without doubt, God is present. He's present carrying out the judgment that he had promised through Nathan. But he's also present speaking. Speaking in the voice of a truly wise woman. In the midst of horrendous pain. Friends, we will all be sinned against. Maybe not like Tamar was, but we will all be sinned against. But we do not have to respond to sin with more sin. We can rebuke as Tamar did. We can ask for justice as Tamar did. And in our grief, we can entrust ourselves to God as Tamar so clearly did depending all the way through that extraordinary, horrendous ordeal on the Word of God, on the law of God, on the justice of God. You know, I think it's far too easy for men especially, but perhaps for women too, to keep this passage at a distance emotionally. Friends, we must not do that. Men especially, we must not do that. Like the Bible, we need to unflinchingly acknowledge that the brutality and the inhumanity of sexual violence against women. You understand rape does not merely assault a woman's body. Rape assaults a woman's humanity. It's not an act of sex. It is an act of violent hatred. It begins with lust. It's it's encouraged by our male culture of entitlement that views women as sex objects and teaches women to think the same of themselves. So I want to appeal to you, brothers, Christian men, do not distance yourself from this passage. Understand The opportunity that you have been given in the gospel. As Christian men, God has given us our strength to protect and to cherish the women in our lives. As we do that, as we do that actively, as we do that passively, by by refusing to participate in the culture that reduces women to sex objects, as we refuse to to, to give in to the temptation to view that pornography, as we refuse to give in to the temptation to linger over that ad, as we refuse to, to take that second look. Brothers, at that point, we have the opportunity to give the world a very different picture of how men relate to women because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
because of the way that he's changed us. If that change is not evident in the way we think about women, then really what is all the rest of the change we claim worth? Now perhaps you're here this morning and you have been the victim of sexual violence. And I, I know that there are such people sitting here. So I want you to know that my heart breaks for you. More importantly, God's heart breaks. He knows. He knows the way sexual violence has touched you. How it touches you at the very core of your being. How it impacts the way you think of yourself, who you are, how you see yourself. Because he understands that, he knows best how to answer it, how to bring healing to it. And this is what he does in the gospel. Friends, Jesus gives us in the gospel, a new identity. A new identity. He, he tells us in the gospel that we are not trash. That, that, that we are not just an, an object used and thrown away. You're, you are treasure to him. You are beloved to Christ. He's proven it by giving his life for you on the cross. Oh, in Jesus, friend, you have a new identity. One that is even more real than the identity that you carry around with you because of the trauma and the damage you've received. What's more, in Christ... You are safe. You are safe forevermore. So if you've not taken the opportunity to, to talk to someone about this, I want to encourage you to do that today. If you are a woman who has, has suffered sexual trauma, find a, a trusted Christian woman that you can talk to. Mary Alice is the director of our women's ministry, Mary Alice DeBoer. She would be more than happy to talk to you. She'd be more than happy to connect you with someone that you could talk to. Of course, in our culture, it's not just women that suffer sexual trauma. There are those in our congregation that suffered, men and women, suffering sexual trauma as children and have spent years hiding it. I want to encourage you to talk to someone. To come out of that hiding that leaves you trapped with an identity that destroys you. And instead come to begin to know the, the healing that the gospel brings.
as we come to a, a Father who understands, as we come to a Savior who died for us. Of course, it's not just Tamar that we have to look at here. It's also Abnam. Friend, do you find yourself able to relate to Amnon? Have you been deceived by your lust? You know, when, when, when lust takes hold of us, it masquerades as love. That's what it does. Oh, I just love that thing, that person, so much. I just, I just have to have it. But you realize, of course, that lust is far closer to hatred than it is to love. For lust does not have the best interest of its object in view. No, lust just has to have the object. Lust just wants the object of its desire to use and consume for itself and its own satisfaction. This is why Amnon's lust, once sated, so quickly turns into hatred. And this is what lust does to all of us. So let me ask you, men and women, what is it that you think you must have today? Do not be deceived. When you get it, you'll just want something more. Because no lust is finally able to satisfy. And so once you get it, you will in the end despise it. Because of what your lust reveals about you. Your neediness. Your vulnerability. Your impotence. Your guilt. You see, the hatred that Amnon knew for Tamar at that moment was really just hatred of himself and what he saw in her, in what he had done to her. Oh, friend, do not be deceived by your lust. Drag your lust out in the open. Conf- again, find somebody that you can confess this to. Expose it for what it is. Not love, not desire, but hatred. And then repent of it. Do not be deceived. Do not think that anything you lust for can finally satisfy you. Instead, realize that only Christ can satisfy you. And so set your heart on Him. You realize that, that, that willpower, that, that discipline is not enough to fight lust. It will always lose the fight with lust. What is needed to win the fight with lust is love. True love. A greater love. A love for Christ that expels this lesser desire. You know, the same goes for bitterness. Bitterness. So we move into the second half of, of chapter 13. You know what bitterness is? Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. That's what bitterness is. It consumes us. But it never satisfies us. 
it leads to revenge. But as we see here, revenge just makes things worse. Because now we're guilty too. So, so friend, if, you, if you're here this morning and you, you read through this passage and you realize that you're, you're far more like Absalom than you'd like to think, that, that, that you're harboring bitterness. Oh, and I, and I understand that there's good reason for it. You've, you have been sinned against. I get it. Or, or if it's not you, somebody that you deeply love has been sinned against. And, and justice has not been done. I get it. But if that is you, recognize that bitterness does not satisfy. Bitterness does not solve anything. Bitterness only enslaves and consumes. Realize that the only thing that can set you free from being enslaved to bitterness is justice. But in a world in which justice is not done, the only one who can free you from that bitterness is God. You see, justice not only restrains sin, it breaks the cycle of sin. Because justice gives you the freedom to forgive. And this is what you need. And it's what God alone can do. You know, this is the, the point of the whole chapter. Tamar and Absalom and Amnon. They needed a king who would rule with justice. And David... David wasn't that king. Now, good government is a gift from God. When, when just laws are justly enforced, sin is restrained. The cycle of injustice is broken. So, so yes, as Christians, we should work for justice, temporal adjustment, justice in this world. We should work through the law. We should work through good government. We should work in our, in our own lives. But at the end of the day, we must remember that there is no government that will perfectly execute justice. For the best of governments is still a fallen government. Now, only God can give us the justice that we need. And that's exactly, that is exactly what he has promised that he will do. Not, not through David, not through the American presidency, not, not through the U.N., but through the king that God himself has anointed, has chosen, and that is Jesus Christ. As Paul declared to the men of Athens in Acts chapter 17, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising that man from the dead. You understand that it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that guarantees that justice will be done. Though it is delayed, it will not finally be denied. Because on the last day, Jesus Christ will judge. What, what right does he have to judge? Oh, every right. Because the resurrection demonstrates that he alone has stood before the bar of God's justice. And been declared not guilty. And so he has every right. 
and every ability to speak for God's justice. On the last day, friends, Jesus will bring every crime, every sin, every sinner to account. As as he himself said in John chapter five, verse 30, my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Friends, this is the hope, at least part of the hope that Christianity holds out in the gospel. Every sin that has been committed against you. Every injustice that you have suffered, every wrong that you have endured in this life will be answered. And so you do not need to take matters into your own hands. You do not have to be consumed with bitterness in this life. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Friend, in the gospel, you can forgive because he will judge. Leave room for the judgment of God. Put your hope, not in your justice, but in his. Chapter 13 ends in grief. And the longing that things could have been different. As chapter 14 opens, we learn that David is now consoled over Amnon's death. Perhaps, perhaps things are about to get better. Perhaps there's going to be a turn for the good. But in fact, and this is my second point, appearances are deceiving. Appearances are deceiving. Look in chapter 14. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning, dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said, help me, O king. The king answered her, what is troubling you? She said, I am indeed a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the air as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go home and I will issue an order in your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, my lord, the king, let the blame rest on me and my father's family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he will not bother you again. She said, then let the king invoke the Lord, his God, to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? 
When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will do what his servant asks. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from the inheritance God gave us. And now your servant says, may the word of my lord, the king, bring me rest. For my lord, the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord, your God, be with you. Then the king said to the woman, do not keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord, the king, speak, the woman said. The king asked, isn't this the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, as surely as you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything. My lord, the king says, yes, it was your servant, Joab, who instructed me to do this. And who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab. Very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor and he blessed the king. Joab said today your servant knows what he, that he has found favor in your eyes. My Lord the king. Because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. The daughter's name was Tamar. and She became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face and if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. It may not have been as obvious to you, but chapter 14, in many ways, is a repeat of chapter 12. Just like chapter 13 repeats chapter 11. In chapter 11, God sent Nathan to David. Here, Joab sends a wise woman to David. Both Nathan and the woman tell a story that's meant to get in under David's defenses and move him to action. In both cases, the story works. In chapter 12, David is the sinner and he's reconciled to God. In chapter 14, Absalom is the sinner and he's reconciled to David. But in fact, chapter 14 is not exactly a repeat and a parallel of chapter 12. It's really more like a photographic negative. It's a parallel 
in opposite. First, we have the appearance of wisdom. But it's really nothing more than manipulation. In chapter 12, God was concerned for justice. But here, Joab has no concern for justice. He just wants political stability. He wants a clear line of succession. The woman's story, like Nathan's, is meant to to catch David. But while Nathan's story sought to arouse David's emotions in order to convict David's conscience. So the woman's story is meant to arouse David's emotions in order to override and evade his conscience. You see, according to the law of Moses, the penalty for murder was death. David knows that. It's why Absalom fled to a foreign city to hang out with his foreign grandfather rather than fleeing to a city of refuge in Israel. There is no refuge for Absalom in Israel. The woman's story is modeled on the story of Cain and Abel. And it is very carefully designed to move the king to show mercy to the murderer, just as God showed mercy to Cain. Now, it appears wise, but in fact, it's nothing more than manipulation. The the parallel with with Cain and Abel is legitimate inside of her made up story. But it's completely illegitimate when it's applied to David and Absalom. There is no inheritance in jeopardy. The king has other sons. And we've already been told who the heir is. It's Solomon. Solomon is the one that God has chosen. Solomon is the one through whom the line will proceed. And yet the story worked. David allows Absalom to return. Why? Well, quite simply because his sentimental love for Absalom prevailed over his duty to judge Absalom's sin. In verse 21 there, he He calls Absalom a a young man, kind of a young lad. Absalom's anything but a young lad. He is all grown up. And he is a murderer and a fugitive. The king knew that he should go after his son to bring him to justice. It's kind of impossible to bring out in the English. but But the Hebrew uses words to describe David's heart for Absalom throughout this passage that are very ambivalent, longing for him or against him. The language can go either way. David is conflicted. He knows he should go after him, but he doesn't. Misguided pity, sentimental love for his son stays his hand. Three years have gone by and he's done nothing. But now, finally, moved by the woman's story, moved by the apparent wisdom of this story, moved perhaps even by his own oath, he'd found the excuse he needed to go with his heart rather than with his head. Five times you see in Deuteronomy, God warns the people of Israel. Five times he warns them not to show pity, but to execute justice. And once in Deuteronomy 19, in a situation exactly describing Absalom's. Now, why the repeated warnings against pity? Isn't pity a good thing? Well, yes, it is a good thing. 
But God warns Israel against wrongly applying pity. Because, of course, it is so very easy to uphold justice against a stranger. But when it's someone that you know, someone you love, someone from your own family, sentiment is likely to lead you astray, just as it did David. He compromises his conscience and he justifies it with his sentiment. Misguided pity pardons the guilty and ignores the claims of justice. There's a lesson for us here as a church. In the face of sin, Jesus calls us to exercise discipline. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. The Apostle Paul talks about it in many places. One of them would be 1 Corinthians 5. We're called to exercise discipline in the face of sin. Now, there is room for mercy. Of course, there is room for pity. We should be quick to show mercy to the repentant. But in the face of unrepentant sin, in the face of persistent sin, We, Christians in the local church, are called to judge. We are called to discipline. And so I I, I must ask us just as a church, Henson Baptist Church, are we so committed to God's word? Are we so ruled by God's standards that we could exercise discipline even against someone that we know and love? Indeed, we have done it before. But that doesn't make next time any easier. It is our commitment to God, not our sentiment for one another, that must finally rule. It is so easy to judge the sin of the people out there that we don't know. The the homosexual, the drug addict, the criminal. So easy to condemn them. Are we able... To call sin, sin, right here at home. And to deal with it as God instructs us to. We need to love God. And we need to love the sinner. And that never means disobeying God's word. Now right away we know that it's it's sentiment that is ruling David here. Because his conscience kicks in. It reasserts itself. Absalom is brought back, but he cannot see the king's face. In other words, his life has been spared. The death penalty has been lifted, but he has not yet been accepted back into the court, back into the line of succession. That is a step, you know, one too far. David is not willing to take that step. Yet. Two more years go by with Absalom living in a sort of internal exile. He gets frustrated. Surely everyone's frustrated. Eventually, he's had enough. He forces a meeting with Joab. Pretty clever, actually. Gets him to show up at his door. And then he calls everybody's bluff. He basically says, look, if I deserve death, then let him execute me. Otherwise, restore me fully. But do not let me hang in this legal limbo any longer. Truer words were never spoken. Joab delivers the message. And David relents. It just took a couple of years. 
Absalom bows down in allegiance and David gives them the kiss of peace. We have the appearance of forgiveness and restoration and everything is set right and nothing could be further from the truth. You can tell from the narration. The meeting is stiff and formal. No words pass. Once again, David has been constrained and manipulated by his sentimental love, unwilling to do the right thing, execute his son. He is the king. He's not just the father. He's the judge. Unwilling to do the right thing, he's trapped into doing the wrong thing. What appears to be mercy is nothing more than cheap grace. There's been no accounting. There's clearly no repentance. The result, as we'll soon see, is that Absalom will despise David as much as Amnon despised Tamar. Friends, sentimental love is not grace. In the end, sentiment destroys. Because sentiment indulges. Sentiment dotes. When it refuses to hold the beloved accountable. When it, when it refuses to confront. When it looks for excuses rather than being willing to bring consequences to bear. Sentiment proves that it is just a cowardly form of hatred. Love is committed to the best interest of the beloved. And in the end, that must mean bringing the beloved to deal with the claims of God and God's justice. Once again, at the end of chapter 14, just like at the end of chapter 13, we are left frustrated. We are left unsatisfied. We are left longing. Because the fact of the matter is that not only like Tamar, people who've been sinned against and longing for justice, we are like Absalom. Guilty people who deserve the king's justice and yet long for the king's forgiveness. Not a, not a cheap forgiveness like David gave, but a, but a real forgiveness, a forgiveness that actually clears our guilt. Friends, this is what Jesus, the son of David, the true king, the better king, Offers us grace. The grace of God, you see, is different than David's compromised, sentimental forgiveness. Grace forgives the guilty. Because grace has first satisfied the claims of justice against the guilty. On the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty that justice demands. He endures what sin deserves on the cross. The the unmitigated, the unrelenting wrath of God. And do not miss the fact that it is the Father executing that against the Son. Doing what David would not do. Friends, Jesus Christ endured that. So that all who repent of their sins and put their faith in Him might be forgiven. Now, with justice satisfied, God declares the guilty not guilty. The sinner justified if he is in Jesus Christ. If she has repented of her sins and put her faith in the one who took her place. 
The kiss of peace, friends, that God gives us in Christ is not the kiss of sentiment. It is the kiss of sacrificial love. So that far from despising the cheap grace and and, and continuing in our rebellion, having received this kind of love, our lives are changed. And we follow Him, submitted to Christ as our King. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, this is what the gospel calls you to do. To to, to own up to your sins, to recognize that you deserve death, but then to come to Christ and to trust that he took it for you. And so know a forgiveness that does not send you on your merry way, but a forgiveness that actually changes you and transforms you into a son or a daughter the king let me encourage you today if you do not know this grace plead with god for it he will not turn you away christian this is the radical justice that brings the cycle of sin to an end this is the judgment that transforms Our hearts, even now, long after we've come to Christ, having confessed that we deserve the death sentence, but trusting every day that Christ took it for us, we realize every day that our life is no longer our own. For all of a sudden, like father, like son, takes on a completely different meaning. It's his life that was given for us. And so it is now his life that we live not a life of lust and and hatred but a life of love and forgiveness and peace every single one of us is the heir apparent of someone come today the heir of Christ and know what it means to be set free from the claims of justice by judgment itself. A judgment motivated not by vengeance, but by love. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to understand the enormity of our sin. Help us to understand the price, the penalty that our sin deserves. And help us to see Jesus Christ paying that price. Father God, bring us to a point where we no longer desire indulgence from you. But what we desire most of all is the real, the lasting, the substantive forgiveness that comes from Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.